The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. Supreme Court opened a new term today. And in the next nine months, an outsized share of the high court's biggest cases will come from the ultra-conservative Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, whose far-reaching rulings are proving impossible for the justices to ignore. Cases involving federal regulatory power, guns, and social media regulation will test just how far the Supreme Court's conservative majority wants to go in remaking the nation's legal landscape. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, just how conservative is the Fifth Circuit? It's unquestionably the most conservative federal appeals court in the country, and it gets an awful lot of cases, so we notice it even more than than other courts. On this court, 12 of its full-time judges are Republican appointees, and only four are Democratic appointees, and six of those Republican appointees are appointees of Donald Trump. And, you know, they include some justices who are really trying to make a name for themselves with some really far-reaching rulings. And so it's kind of consistently the place where conservatives go when they are looking to, to push the law in a certain direction. There have been a lot of stories about the Texas judges who've become the go-to judges, for example, for Republican states that, that want to sue. Tell us about the Trump appointees on the Fifth Circuit, because what seems unusual about them is they're not only conservative, but several of them made statements before they became judges that staked out very conservative positions on issues like abortion and gay marriage. Yeah, so there's also one who, uh, while on the bench, has made some really remarkable statements. That's James Ho. He's a, a Trump appointee. He's described abortion, while on the bench, as a moral tragedy and written that if there's too much money in politics, it's because there's too much government. And then there's some other judges that really drew a lot of controversy when they were nominated. A guy like Corey Wilson, who had written that gay marriage is a pander to liberal interest groups. Another judge, Stuart Kyle Duncan, who uh, has written a lot of things in opposition to LGBTQ rights. And he was a judge who drew that protest at Stanford Law School where protesters shut him down, wouldn't let him speak. So he's very much a lightning rod. The Fifth Circuit hasn't been faring that well at the Supreme Court. To me, it's taken the position the Ninth Circuit used to take, where it was the most reverse circuit for so many years. So tell us how it's done in the past year. Not very well. So in the last Supreme Court term, in seven of nine cases, the court decided it at least partially or largely reversed the Fifth Circuit. And the way it's different, just to go back to the Ninth Circuit, the way it's different is the Ninth Circuit had a well-deserved reputation back in the day as being very, very liberal. And the Supreme Court, even when it wasn't as conservative as this court is, would say, no, we're not going to let you do that Ninth Circuit. Here it's a case where the Fifth Circuit is trying to sort of go beyond where the Supreme Court has gone. It is the conservative Supreme Court, and we have the Fifth Circuit trying to push the envelope even beyond where the Supreme Court has gone. 
do some of their decisions seem like decisions that the Supreme Court almost has to take or it will allow the law to be, you know, even further out or even more conservative than the court envisioned? Yeah. So a number of the cases the Supreme Court has this term are cases where the Biden administration is is appealing. And they're cases where the Fifth Circuit struck down something that either an administrative agency or Congress did. So one example, there's a law that says that people subject to a domestic violence restraining order can have their Second Amendment rights, gun rights, taken away. The Fifth Circuit said, nope, that law is unconstitutional. The Biden administration came up to the Supreme Court, and really in that sort of situation, the court almost has to take the case. So we're going to now see what the Supreme Court thinks about that interpretation of the Second Amendment. Yeah, that's guaranteed to be one of the biggest cases of the term. And my favorite line from that really was the Fifth Circuit saying that while the defendant there, Rahimi, was, quote, hardly a model citizen, he was entitled to Second Amendment protections. And this is a defendant who not only had a restraining order against him by his former girlfriend, but also shot his gun in public, I think, five times. So not exactly a model defendant for a case like this. No. And in fact, if you're a Second Amendment advocate, a really bad defendant to have in a case like this, you have both this law that you know protects against something that is pretty commonly understood to be a very, very dangerous situation, which is somebody with a domestic violence restraining order having access to firearms. And you also have somebody who a judge found had engaged in all sorts of, of criminal violent activity. And the confluence of those things make it a case where even with this conservative Supreme Court, it's going to be pretty hard for them to explain why Mr. Rahimi is somebody who is entitled to to keep his Second Amendment rights. The Supreme Court has several cases that may allow it to expand its attempt to rein in the administrative state. And a couple come from the Fifth Circuit. Coming up tomorrow, oral arguments in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's funding system. The second time, I think, the CFPB has been before the the court. So tell us about this Fifth Circuit decision. Yeah, it is the second time the CFPB has been up before the Supreme Court. This case has to do with how the Bureau gets its money. It gets its money through the Federal Reserve System. It doesn't rely on the year-to-year congressional appropriations. And that was part of Congress's design in creating this Bureau after the 2008 financial crisis. They wanted to give the CFPB a certain amount of independence, shielded from the political processes. And what the Fifth Circuit said was this system violates the constitutional provision that says government spending has to be done via a congressional appropriation. Now, in the past, courts, including the Supreme Court, have said that provision is something that keeps the executive branch from spending money that Congress hasn't authorized to be spent. Courts haven't used it to restrict Congress in the way they can set up an agency. Well, the Fifth Circuit did in this case. So it's a novel constitutional approach. There's not a whole lot to go by in terms of of precedent, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the Supreme Court deals with that and then what it decides to do if it agrees that the system is unconstitutional. There's another case, and it's the SEC and its use of in-house judges, another issue that's been before the court. And the Fifth Circuit found three different problems with this? <laughs> they three did. different? Uh, <laughs> three different problems. Two of them are are sort of connected, and that may be kind of the biggest part of the case. The Fifth Circuit said 
that under the Constitution, folks hit with a, an SEC complaint, uh, in many cases, have a right to a jury trial, meaning the SEC cannot bring those cases before an administrative law judge at the agency. They have to go into federal court. And then the related aspect of the ruling is the Fifth Circuit said, and Congress did not give clear enough guidance to the SEC, uh, clear enough principles to decide which cases it's going to take before an administrative law judge and which case is going to go to the Supreme Court. The final issue uh, is that the Fifth Circuit said that the job protections that the administrative law judges at the SEC have leave them too insulated from presidential control. That's an issue the Supreme Court has considered in slightly different contexts before. So if the Supreme Court wants to rule against the SEC, it's got kind of a menu of ways it can do that. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr, and we'll talk about Justice Clarence Thomas recusing himself from a case involving January 6th. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Last term, the Fifth Circuit did not fare well at the Supreme Court. The court at least partially rejected the Fifth Circuit's position in seven of nine cases. This term, fights are teed up over the Fifth Circuit's decisions on federal regulatory power, guns, and social media regulation. Here's former U.S. Solicitor General Gregory Gar's take on the Fifth Circuit's role this term. It's really, you know, one of the broader themes that we're seeing in this court. And some people have said it's sort of the Supreme Court versus the Fifth Circuit. Uh, It's interesting. I mean, the Fifth Circuit is now the most conservative circuit among the many. And, you know, the kind of question that all these cases present is whether the Fifth Circuit has got out ahead of even the U.S. Supreme Court today in terms of how conservative it is and whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court feels as though it has to rein it in a little bit. And although... You know, this Supreme Court is certainly one of the most conservative in history. As we saw last term, there's still a few justices in the center that are not necessarily as comfortable going as far as some of the justices at the far right want to go, the Chief Justice, Justice Kavanaugh. And so in each of these cases, the spotlight is really going to be on those justices in the middle and whether or not they're comfortable adopting these broader theories. I've been discussing the Fifth Circuit with Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr two cases that the justices just decided to take up last week involve free speech, the rights of social media companies, and a Fifth Circuit decision that clashes with an Eleventh Circuit decision. The Eleventh Circuit, probably the second most conservative circuit in the country. It is a very uh, conservative appeals court as well. These are laws that were put into place by Republican-controlled states, Texas and Florida. And they basically dictate the social media companies how they should go about managing content and removing misinformation. And they have rules about what they have to say when they you know, take down a post online. And the social media industry trade groups sued and said that violates our First Amendment rights. The Fifth Circuit upheld the Texas law, so that law uh, would go into effect under that ruling. The 11th Circuit struck down much of Florida's law. It's a little bit different. The 11th Circuit devoted much of its focus to 
a provision that requires a detailed explanation every time a social media company makes a, a content management decision. So this is going to be a big both First Amendment free speech fight and a political fight since a lot of this is about, you know, posts that make political statements and, you know, talk about things like whether an election was fair. Greg, the Supreme Court could also take up a Fifth Circuit case on the abortion pill, Mifepristone. Greg, this decision by a conservative Texas Christian federal judge, which went to the Fifth Circuit, has already been at the Supreme Court once. Yeah, so right now the abortion pill is fully available, and that's because the Supreme Court several months ago issued a stay that kept the pill fully on the market while this legal fight goes forward. That was a a significant win for Biden administration and abortion rights groups. The question is basically whether the, the Food and Drug Administration, when it approved the drug, considered all the things it was supposed to do, and then later on when the FDA under Joe Biden and Barack Obama expanded access to it, allowing things like mail order, allowing the drug to be mailed to people directly and, and, and meaning they didn't have to go to a doc to obtain it. Whether those things complied with the rules that govern administrative agencies. The district judge you referenced blocked the, the drug entirely or said he would have blocked the drug entirely. The, the Fifth Circuit eased up on that a little bit and said some changes that were made starting in 2016 to widen access to it, we're going to block those. And for the time being, everything is, is on hold. The drug is fully available. But the Supreme Court has not yet said whether it will take that case. The Biden administration has filed its appeal. It'll probably be later on this year. Again, this is one of these cases where because the appeals court said the federal government has done something wrong and the administration is appealing, it's the kind of case the Supreme Court almost always takes. The Supreme Court is going to consider whether the FDA you know, took some shortcuts or didn't fully consider what it was supposed to consider when it expanded access to the drug. I thought when the Supreme Court, you know, issued the stay, they were sort of telling the Fifth Circuit, you know, we don't want to deal with this. But the Fifth Circuit just went ahead. Yeah, the Fifth Circuit essentially reaffirmed what it had suggested previously, saying that these changes that allowed mail distribution, for example, were in violation of the law. And so it did not take that message from the Supreme Court that it was supposed to to back full access to this drug. And and now we'll see, you know, sometimes when the Supreme Court issues an emergency order, a stay order, you know, sometimes that's a very good indication of how they're going to come out on the merits. But as we saw in the case last term involving Alabama and redistricting and the creation of a second majority black district in the state, sometimes that's not the case. And sometimes the Supreme Court goes in a different direction. So this will undoubtedly be a very, very uh, hotly contested fight. How long does the Supreme Court stay remain in effect? I mean, the Fifth Circuit has already issued its decision twice. Yes, the Supreme Court stay remains in effect until they either say, no, we're not going to take the government's appeal, or until after they take the appeal and resolve the case. So the stay essentially keeps the drug fully available until the Supreme Court makes a final decision one way or another. Irv Gornstein of Georgetown Law Center said, 
Some of the Fifth Circuit's decisions that will be reviewed this term may well be affirmed. Not every one of them was delivered from crazy town. But it would be shocking if at least some of those decisions are not reversed. And, you know, that seems to be the problem. These decisions are not just conservative, but they're novel. They just seem, you know, not wedded to precedent. You know, some of them are taking on new issues. The appropriations clause issue is one that hasn't really been tested, at least not recently. And some of them, you look at the gun case, for example, the the, the Rahimi case. When the Supreme Court ruled on the right to carry a gun in 2022, the court said the test is going to be history and tradition. And you're supposed, judges, you're supposed to look and try to find a historical analog for some current regulation. And if you can't find a historical analog, that's a, a pretty good sign that this provision is unconstitutional. And that's the analysis the Fifth Circuit went into. And so as it comes back here, the Supreme Court's you know, in the position of saying, well, you took that a little too far. So, you know, in some cases, it is the Fifth Circuit going off on its own. And in other cases, it's, you know, at least arguably taking what the Supreme Court has, has given it and, and running with it. That landmark Second Amendment Supreme Court decision seems to need some clarification because it's causing confusion in lower courts. Before you go, Greg, I want to talk about Justice Clarence Thomas recusing himself today. Tell us about the case he recused from. So this is an appeal by John Eastman. He is the former lawyer to to President Trump. He is somebody who is under indictment as part of the Georgia case, uh, alleging a criminal conspiracy to overturn the election. And this case stems from efforts by the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack to get his emails, and he was arguing privilege. And Justice Thomas, who heretofore has not recused from any January 6th-related case, did recuse from the court's decision not to hear John Eastman's appeal. Now, Justice Thomas did not give any explanation for it. It's by no means clear that he is having a change of heart. Uh, There are reasons why in this Eastman case, uh, maybe in his mind, it's a little bit different. John Eastman is a former law clerk of Justice Thomas. These emails, according to a report from Politico about a year ago, included some back and forth uh, in which uh, Eastman says that in the course of the 2020 election fight, that the best hope was to get something before Justice Thomas. So the emails may well talk about Justice Thomas directly. But in any event, it is a noteworthy moment because Justice Thomas did recuse himself. There's been a lot of pressure on Justice Thomas to recuse himself, especially in the January 6th cases. But what you're saying is this may just be an isolated instance. It's possible. It's really, again, he didn't give an explanation. Some justices do give an explanation. That's something that the court as a whole has been trying to do a little bit more, but it's kind of justice by justice. And he gave us no no indication why, so we're left to speculate. And I certainly am not going to sit here and say I am now confident he's going to recuse from every January 6th case because that is probably not the case. Probably not. Thanks so much, Greg. It's a busy term ahead. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, inside J.P. Morgan Chase's year of being haunted by Jeffrey Epstein. And later in the show, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried on fraud charges begins tomorrow. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th 
A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. J.P. Morgan Chase and company has reached settlements with the U.S. Virgin Islands and former executive Jess Staley over ties to Jeffrey Epstein as it seeks to end its legal woes over its banking relationship with the notorious sex offender. The biggest U.S. bank tentatively agreed to pay $75 million to the U.S. Virgin Islands, a tiny number for the firm which generates that much revenue in about five hours. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison, whose story is entitled Inside J.P. Morgan's Year of Being Haunted by Jeffrey Epstein. Was the top brass at J.P. Morgan surprised to learn that the Virgin Islands was pursuing a claim against them uh, having to do with Epstein? Apparently so, based on our reporting. Uh, we know that before this case, uh, even got to court, the U.S. Virgin Islands sat down with lawyers for J.P. Morgan and laid out the findings of their investigation, alleging that they violated different banking laws and essentially accusing the bank of facilitating um, Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking. There was a bit of a sense, I think, uh, that the bank wasn't taking it as seriously as maybe they should have, and uh, there seems to be an element of surprise, I guess, from J.P. Morgan's point of view that the U.S. Virgin Islands ended up proceeding uh, with that case. The damaging revelations about the extent of J.P. Morgan's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein sort of kept trickling out bit by bit. How did Jamie Dimon and other officials at the bank view that drip drip? I think that it was a little bit mixed and there was some sort of inflection points in the legal strategy in this case. The U.S. Virgin Islands came out of the gate very strongly with a lot of um, pretty compelling evidence, you know, the contents of thousands of emails from uh, inside J.P. Morgan uh, that gave us a bit of an insight into the discussions that were going on around how to manage Jeffrey Epstein. But then J.P. Morgan came back a few months later as his case was uh, going on and playing out in the court, and they got their own emails showing what was going on with Jeffrey Epstein and uh, different government figures in the U.S. Virgin Islands as well. From the bank side, I think, the, like you mentioned, the drip, drip, drip of different emails from Barry Erdos, from different people sort of around Jamie Dimon, but not Jamie Dimon himself, was a bit of a public relations headache. Dimon eventually was deposed over seven hours. What do we know about that deposition? Yes, that's right. A judge ordered that he put aside two days to be deposed, but the deposition only ended up taking one day. And it was lawyers for all parties involved in this litigation. So lawyers for the US Virgin Islands, lawyers for Jane Doe, which had also reached its another settlement with the bank, and lawyers for former banker Jess Staley. It took about seven hours, uh, and there was a three to 400-page transcript of the deposition that was released afterwards. Did he talk about meetings with Epstein or communications with him? 
No, he was very, very strong in his denials of really knowing anything about Jeffrey Epstein. He said he never met him, he never spoke to him, he didn't have any decision-making ability over his accounts or how he was managed as a client. At one point during his deposition, he said that the first time I heard of the guy was in 2019 when he was charged with uh, federal sex trafficking charges. Jess Staley, tell us about that, how that evolved. When JP Morgan wrapped up uh, its case with the US Virgin Islands last week, it also reached a agreement with Jess Daly. Jess Daly was uh, a long-term executive at JP Morgan. He had a very long-standing professional relationship and a friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. JP Morgan had sued Staley a few months ago, arguing that he should be held liable for any damages awarded against it in this broader Epstein litigation, saying that he vouched for Jeffrey Epstein when he shouldn't have, and they didn't really know the extent of Epstein's behaviour because Staley was seeing his praises constantly. So JP Morgan has reached some sort of agreement with Staley uh, to end that lawsuit, but the terms of that settlement are confidential. So we don't know yet if there was money involved or what the exact conditions were. That $75 million is much, much less than what the Virgin Islands initially asked for. That's right. Uh, JP Morgan and the U.S. Virgin Islands settled for $75 million. Uh, that includes $20 million in attorney fees. Initially, uh, based on our reporting from uh, different sources, the U.S. Virgin Islands had wanted $300 million, which would have put it on par with the settlement J.P. Morgan reached with uh, Jane Doe, victims of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, earlier this year. A couple of months ago, uh, they said publicly that they wanted $190 million um, in penalties and fines from J.P. Morgan. So $75 million is considerably less. But I would point out that the U.S. Virgin Islands has gone to great lengths to say, yes, $75 million is less than the $190 million that we'd asked for a couple of months ago, but they claim that JP Morgan has agreed to make certain concessions internally, anti-trafficking concessions, to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. $75 million, and the bank generates that much revenue in about five hours. So they had a very tough strategy against the Virgin Islands. What made them decide to settle finally, do you know? We were approaching a decision on summary judgment. So both sides had made their arguments to the judge as to why he should rule in their favour before trial. And I think that was always going to be a sort of a good time for these parties to come back to the negotiation table. We had heard that settlement talks and mediation had broken down a number of times over the past several months. And there'd been a lot of embarrassing revelations to come out about J.P. Morgan and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So it seemed like both sides were just ready to maybe stop the public relations blowback that they were both receiving uh, and finally reach a conclusion. Did all this in public take a toll on the reputation of any of the upper echelon at J.P. Morgan or the bank itself? When we talk about Jamie Diamond, I think that he has done a pretty good job at coming out of this unscathed. He has always said that he had nothing to do with J.P. Morgan's accounts. There was one sort of lone email from a staffer inside the bank referring to Epstein's accounts and the status of them being subject to pending Diamond review, but that didn't really go anywhere. But I think that uh, one of his trusted lieutenants, uh, Mary Erdos, 
it's been a little bit more harmful for uh, her reputation. She had a lot more interaction with Jeffrey Epstein when he was alive. She had been to his house. She was the executive that went round and fired him personally in 2013. So is this the absolute end of the problems that J.P. Morgan Chase has had with Jeffrey Epstein? I'm sure they hope so. The judge still needs to sign off on the US Virgin Islands and JP Morgan settlement, which will probably happen uh, over the next several months. Uh, In terms of whether we will see any more revelations about how JP Morgan handled Jeffrey Epstein, I don't think so. It's all been, all the bad laundry has really been aired out over the past several months. Let's turn now to a trial that starts tomorrow, Sam Bankman-Fried. So prosecutors have called this one of the biggest frauds in U.S. history. What is he accused of exactly? That's right. He is accused of misappropriating billions of dollars at FTX, which was one of the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchanges. At the core of this case is an allegation that he allowed Alameda Research, which was his crypto hedge fund that he started in 2017, to essentially draw down on customer funds whenever it wanted and however it wanted. Those funds were then used, allegedly, on high-risk trading, real estate purchases in the Bahamas, multi-billion dollar loans to executives. Sam Bankman-Fried has pleaded not guilty to all seven of the fraud charges against him. Do we know what his defence is going to be? We have hints of what his defence is going to be. Generally, you know, defence teams hold those defence strategy pretty close to their chest until the trial begins, but we've been able to glean uh, some signs of what it might shape up to be from different legal filings. He may want to talk about the presence of counsel so that there were lawyers at FTX and at outside firms advising FTX on many of the things that prosecutors say were wrong. He may also want to talk about crypto regulation and laws in the US because FTX was an international exchange and much of the misappropriating was um, happening around the international exchanges as opposed to the US arm. And he may also talk about his intent and that he had acted in good faith and he didn't have the unlawful intent that is a key element in proving fraud. Who are the main witnesses for the prosecution? Three main witnesses that everyone is really looking forward to hearing from, three former executives who were very close to Sam Bateman-Fried. That is Nishad Singh, Gary Wong, and Caroline Ellison. Ellison was uh, the head of Alameda Research, and she also dated Sam Bateman-Fried on and off over the past few years. So I think that she, her evidence in particular, is something that we'll be keeping an eye on because she will probably speak to the relationship between Alameda and FTX, talk about what Sam Bankman-Fried knew about Alameda accessing customer funds. And he's facing a judge who not only just recently decided that he wasn't complying with the terms of his bail and threw him into jail, but also has said that he could be facing, if convicted, a very long sentence. Exactly. And the judge has um, really uh, served a number of blows to um, Sam Bateman-Fried's defense. Uh, He has sort of hinted at um, different defense strategies he might pursue um, in his pre-trial motions. Uh, The judge has ruled uh, in favor of the government in precluding a lot of those arguments, including the 
presence and advice of counsel defence and making that argument during the opening statements um, later this week. So it's been a uphill battle for him, along with having his bail revoked um, several weeks ago as well. That's been really difficult for him to work on his um, case full time. Jury selection starts tomorrow. I know you're covering the case for us, Ava, so we'll be checking back with you. Thanks so much. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Ava Benny Morrison. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.